podcast with James and Jane. Hey, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you all about the great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out our online seminar program, the workshops we run, as well as our coaching and all the other podcasts we've recorded. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now on to this episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? Today, uh, we have a guest. Ooh, exciting. Uh, we have a friend of the World of Work project, uh, Rob Robson. Right. And we're going to be uh, talking to him all about reversal theory. Oh, nice. So reversal theory is a theory of motivation. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding, although I think Rob's going to take us through in a little bit more detail how it relates to other theories and, and where it sits in that sort of family of theories of motivation. Cool. Well, let's just get straight into the conversation and see where it goes. So here we are in the main part of this podcast. Today we're having a conversation with uh, Rob Robson. We're going to speak about motivation and specifically we're going to reflect a little bit on reversal theory, which is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, Before we get into that though, Rob, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and say a bit about yourself and your background? Yes. I um, was, I would say, I'm a business psychologist. I originally uh, trained as a, a sports psychologist, but I spent most of my life in the corporate world. And for the last couple of years now, I've been running my own consultancy business called Eight Connect People. Um, we specialize in helping people and organizations to change, I suppose, more specifically to embrace, create and lead to change. And we use motivation very much as our labor for doing that. Cool. Well, motivation is a really powerful topic, and it's something that we've touched yeah. on a little bit in the past, but it, yeah. it fits into so many aspects of work, and it's really sort of an underlying pillar. Um, yeah. Before we get too far into it, though, I mean, starting with the basics, you know, when we speak about motivation, what do you think it means to you? I mean, like, how would you describe motivation? And uh, I guess following on from that, why do you think it's important for the world of work? Well, I suppose you could look at motivation in the most basic sense as the drive to do something. You are motivated by a goal, which doesn't necessarily imply um, achievement. It could be something mm-hmm. more more basic than that, or, or more relational than that. Um, but as we'll get into with with the discussion around reversal theory, I see motivation in a slightly broader way. Um, mm-hmm. It's a bit more about how we see the world. You know, it is an important topic. It's it is something that I think underpins just about every aspect of workplace all the different pillars that you might look at in the sort of hr and an od world it does mm-hmm. kind of underpin everything engagement leadership change you know performance management learning all motivational and later on i'll suggest emotivational which is yeah. adding in the, the emotion yeah interesting um and motivation is one of those things i guess people have been really interested in it for centuries right i mean i'm not Uh, as steeped in in the background of this stuff as others but my understanding is that there have been lots of different theories of motivation over time and they continue to evolve have you have you got thoughts on maybe what some of the the pivotal theories are that that sort of are the building blocks to where we are now with motivation or at least the the building blocks leading up to reversal theory yeah i mean i think you know i do think people that have been interested in motivation right back you know into into philosophy and all that sort of thing but as a as a topic within psychology i'd say it's as as old as psychology itself and, you know, a lot of the core developments in psychology have been broadly motivational. So there's a whole load of history, which, well, if I tried to prepare a lecture on it, it would take me more than the hour we've got today. But, um, 
But I think we have to go back to some of the early observations about that came really out of physiology. Um, I, okay. I think that's a starting point because I think it's it's really driven a lot of our thinking about motivation, um, particularly in the mm-hmm. early days. So if you look back at the observations in physiology and, and the names, I think Cannon is, is, is key. This notion that came out of early physiological research that suggested that we always seek homeostasis as individuals that mm-hmm. you know we, we seek that sort of balanced state and in purely physiological terms you know even things like temperature if we go above 37 and a half degrees celsius we sweat if we go below it we we shiver and and our body tries to regulate yeah. itself and then when you look at the early stuff around that it was a big influence in early stuff in, in psychology around um around things like how we experience uh, arousal Right, led to the the inverted U hypothesis and Yarkey's Dodson and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and I think a lot of the early early work in motivation was founded on on this basis that motivation was largely unconscious and driven by internal mechanisms that we didn't particularly think and reflect on. And so that's where yeah. Sigmund Freud suggested we have two basic needs, which is to live and die, and to sort of arousal very much in in sort of sexual terms and all that sort of stuff. Yes. But that the sort of the grounding basis for a lot of the stuff that happened in content-based um, yeah. motivation, which centers around needs. And then you had McDougall who talked yeah. about 18 basic needs. And those kind of ideas were the basis for Maslow, who's very familiar to a lot of people in, uh-huh. in the business world with the hierarchy of needs, yeah. which suggested that in order to progress onto a sort of a higher order need like self-actualization. You had to deal with the lower order needs like safety or, you know, um, physiological needs. And that stream of work around needs has continued. Yeah. Um, But there's also a whole stream around how we are motivated. Uh Um, And so what's interesting is I think those worlds have come together somewhat in more recent years. Um, but again, the early uh-huh. themes on that, on that action control came very much out of this idea that we have buttons and if they're pressed, we sort of automatically respond. We don't really think about things. But it's those thoughts about the mechanisms that led to people like Hertzberg, so mm-hmm. who got into the hygiene factors, motivating factors, and, and the idea that what motivates us isn't necessarily the same as, as what demotivates us. Um, and that's that's also implies that the intrinsic and extrinsic elements that is the foundation for yeah. the most popular theory today, I would say the dominant theory of motivation, which is around self-determination theory, which is, yeah. again goes back to needs. So that's what I'm saying about the distinctions becoming blurred and coming together. In between, mm-hmm. a whole load of things have happened. You know, people will have heard of theory X and theory Y, which are different assumptions about people. Do we need a kick up the backside or do we seek fulfillment? Do we actually do we seek meaning in our work and do we, do we want to achieve? Again, important distinctions, yeah. important to think about those sorts of things. Um, then we get into things like Vroom. I guess the thing about Vroom is a very rational view Funnily enough, we recorded an episode like ages ago, mm. didn't we? And we, uh, like, I'm looking at James and I'm trying to remember. I think it's like a year ago. Yeah, about a year ago. And we talked about, we didn't talk particularly about self-determination theory when we looked at it. No, history, we didn't, But we did we talk yeah. about that split between content and process. Yeah. And that kind of, it feels a little bit divisive to think about the world either with, either it's, it's you know, content stroke needs or it's process. 
Yeah, it is. What's what I'm trying to say there is that they're, they're almost like two different ways of looking at people. One is a little bit like people as machines, yeah, okay. which is where the process one comes in, which is a little bit rationally driven. And then slightly less rational is where the needs come in. And I think that's the two aspects that have come together with things like self-determination theory. Um, so you even look at goal setting, the theory behind it is, again, quite rational. So what feels like has happened in the sophistication with motivation theory is that those two worlds have come together somewhat, I think. Um, and I think it's a good thing because if you look at that needs-based, that content-based approach, stuff like Maslow, when you look at it at a conceptual level, it's quite hard to argue against it, right? It has a lot of appeal. Yeah, it feels very intuitive. It's uh, Like you say, it's appealing. But actually, it's been very difficult yeah. to demonstrate those more process-type theories of motivation. It's sort of easier to test, easier to demonstrate, easier to assess. If this, then yeah, that. Okay. Yes, we can observe that. And so that greater sophistication sure. has brought things together. So things like self-determination talks about needs, but it also does talk about but how okay. how that works. Um, and that's what the, the intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, for example. Self-determination in theory, it's interesting because when we talk about reversal theory, one of the challenges we always set ourselves is, is how can we make it as appealing as something like self-determination theory, which is really cut through. Yeah, it has, yeah. And actually, there's that simplicity of self-determination theory is, you know, is based on the three concepts of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Yeah. Or in Dan Pink's... Yeah. 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 It all comes back yeah. to drive, doesn't it? Always Re yeah. rename, rename two of them and see how you get. Yeah. Yeah, in Dan Pick's version of it, it's the three C's, isn't it? It's control, competence, and connectedness. Mm. Now, actually, when you look at self-termination theory, there's a whole set of sub-theories around it. But the hook has meant it's become popular is those three those three concepts. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, it's explainable. It's you know, I can explain it to my gran. Yeah, right? yeah, it's reduction. Yeah, exactly. I, I, it's, so, it's so able to be reduced. But yeah. so one of the reasons that I, like, I, I listened in on some of your stuff about reversal theory a while back, so thank you for that. And one of the things that really appeals to me about, and um, I guess why we were really keen to have the conversation is that it, as much as I do, I really, I like, I find uh, SDT really useful self-determination theory, and I find it something that I can talk to clients about and things like that. And um, sometimes it feels really reductive, even yeah. in the way I talk about it, even yeah. knowing all the sub stuff. And mm. so, you know, what would be really, I guess what the, one of the things that is really interesting about reversal theory is it's, a, it's still got a straightforward framework, Yeah. but it's a, it explains a little bit more of the, differences yeah. I guess of context and stuff. so yeah. maybe if you could introduce the audience to reversal theory yeah. and just give them in the easiest way possible this is this is your chance to make yeah. it as easy as SDT <laughs> yeah, yeah. as relatable yeah. and accessible no right. pressure yeah well, well essentially reversal theory is a theory of human personality and experience that centers on motivation and it describes essentially eight ways in which we see the world and those ways are motivational mm -hmm. so it's essentially it describes eight motivations as lenses that shape mm -hmm. our perspective shape our experience and so it has this link to emotions as well and those eight styles are meta motivations or the, the motivation behind the motivation so if i say yeah. i'm motivated to go to work today well it's the it's the question of yeah. well what is it that you seek but it's slightly different from the needs-based work around self-determination theory because what self-determination theory suggests is that we need to get certain things from our environment to feel motivated, to feel intrinsically motivated. Um, mm -hmm. It's slightly different 
but only subtly, and it, it suggests that we are at any point in time we are driven by these different motivations, uh, and they have these underlying basic motives. But they, they're sort of needs in the sense that we are thought to be happier, healthier, you know, higher performing when we can access all eight of them at different times. Okay. Um, but it's they're not described as needs. But the, yeah. the most important thing about reversal theory really is it describes human nature in a very dynamic way. And motivations are the mechanism that's used to describe them. But that link to emotion is important because it actually says, well, if you can change your motivations, you can change your experience of events. Okay. And that's a very helpful way of you know, solving problems, dealing with stress, and just helping people to change. Yeah, and, and that feels like it helps with sort of management of self in different circumstances, yeah. and, and which yeah. feels helpful. You mentioned management of self. That shows the, the sort of link to, to things like emotional intelligence. Yeah. Um, it's a very good way of helping people to understand themselves, to manage themselves, to understand others and yeah. to relate to others, which yeah. is the foundation of emotional intelligence. But it's also, like we said, it's this very broad framework and it's very versatile. So you can talk about things like resilience in those terms, in terms of being able to adapt your motivations to meet the different demands of the situation. It's so so broad in that sense. It's been described as a, a systems theory. So if we if we step back, if we think about it, you said it's got yeah. these meta-emotional uh, or meta-emotions that we talk about, and you said there are eight different ones. Could you explain what those are? What yes. are the different emotions, and, and how, you know how many can you you know occupy at once and things like that? So I'll I'll start at the highest level. Yeah. Uh, because there, there are eight, four of them relate to activity and four of them relate to relationships. So visually we've got this glasses metaphor and one lens of the glasses is if you only look at the world through that lens, you're only seeing uh, how things relate to activity. So okay. that, and that breaks down into to how we see goals and how we see rules. Okay. And then on the other side, we look at the relationships aspect of it, who we identify with, whose needs we identify with, and then in, in our interactions, whether we're interested in power or harmony. So I've mentioned the four domains, the goals, rules, identification, and transaction. Mm -hmm. Four domains which all have polar opposite ends. Okay. And that, that's what makes up the eight different motivational styles. So when we talk about goals, we talk about deferred goals and interested in the future consequences, etc. That's what we call the serious style. Yeah. Okay. Or the need for immediate gratification or enjoyment is the playful style. And do you see these as, you know, as binary or, or is it a sliding scale? What, what's your view on They're binary. Yeah. When we're there, we're there. Okay. And that's where it's radically different to trait psychology. If we're measured by traits, we would be somewhere on the yeah. scale between the two. But actually it says when we're here, we're here. Okay. And that's really important because we do have a concept of dominance. But if, if I said to you, look, I'm serious, dominant. Yeah. Um, I can still be very playful. Yes, yes, at the right moment in time or whatever. Exactly. So I can access all these binary states. So that was goals. Goals were yep. serious and playful. Um, and then you've got rules. So you either want to follow rules or you want to be free from them. Okay. Um, when it comes to identification, it's either you identify with your own needs or you yeah. identify with needs beyond yourself with others. Okay. And in terms of those transactions, like I actually mentioned before, it's either about a need for mastery, uh, power, control, competence, or you're concerned with emotion, harmony, relationships. 
So those are the opposite ends. And we flip between those different uh-huh. states at different times. And that's where the word reversal comes into the theory. But what that also means is because there's those four pairs, yeah. it means that we're in four of those states at any point in time. So I could be playful, conforming, sympathetic, and altruistic all at the same time. Exactly. But you wouldn't necessarily be conscious of all four. Yeah, okay. okay. But a bit like in Gestalt, you've got the concept of foreground and background. You know, one or two would be more noticeable. You'd be more conscious of one or two of them at any point in time. Yeah, okay. Interesting. And those drive your emotions. Yeah. So on the left-hand side, when we talk about activity, our relationship with goals and rules, Essentially, that's about physiological arousal, Mm -hmm. whether we experience that physiological arousal as pleasant or unpleasant. Okay. And on the other side with relationships, it's about win-lose, or you could describe it as give-gain. Yeah. And depending on where we are, we will experience that winning or losing as pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah, okay. So, for example, it might seem odd to say that you might find winning unpleasant. Uh Uh-huh. But when you're in the other-oriented style, you would not want to win. Yes, yes. Uh, well, not that you wouldn't want to win. You might enjoy winning for a number of distant reasons. Yeah. There was some research in football in Korea. Okay. And they've got a very collectivist society. Yeah. And they found that amongst some of the other emotions that football players described when they won, Oh, yeah. There was guilt. Yeah, yeah, I do. I remember reading something similar to this, yeah. Yeah, so th- that's an example of how you can experience winning from that perspective. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If I win, somebody else doesn't win. Yeah, and then the, on the other side, when we talk about physiological arousal, if you are concerned with future outcomes, consequences, etc., then you find that physiological arousal is unpleasant. Yeah. Whereas if you're interested in immediate gratification and enjoyment, you find that physiological arousal is pleasant. Yes, okay. You know, whether you like sport or not, it's very good at shining a light on some of this stuff. Again, in football, you see it all the time that fans, when the team's in trouble, relegation dogfight, they'll be saying, and they've got no passion. They weren't even trying. Yeah. Well, that's probably anxiety. It's probably that they're so focused on the outcomes at that point that they can't help but experience that intensity as unpleasant. Yeah, okay. So you see now that we're even not really talking about motivation. We're talking about how we experience the world, but it's all motivational. Yeah, okay. It's it's the motivations that are driving that. And that's where reversal theory is very different. Yeah. I think it's just about the only framework I know that makes that link explicit. Yeah. And you you talked a little bit earlier about you know the name and, and the fact that it is called reversal mm. theory so so how does reversal come into it or where does that name really fit within what we're talking about so that's the notion that if i'm in the serious style now mm-hmm. just like that i can flip to the playful okay. as an example yeah so like i could be driving along the road and i've got the radio on and i'm enjoying some good tunes yeah. And my speed starts to pick up. I'm not quite enjoying that. You know, yeah. It's good fun. And I start forgetting about the consequences of going quite fast. Yeah. And the speed picks up. And then in the distance, I see a police car. Yes, okay. And just so like that, my heart feels like it's going to break my ribcage. You've got that sudden feeling of panic. Yeah. And what's happening there is that you're experiencing the physiological arousal, first of all, as enjoyment, and then all of a sudden it changes, your perspective flips, because now you're concerned with being caught. Yeah, okay. Or you might see an accident on the other side of the road. That would change your perception. And then all of a sudden you would not want to experience it. Another example from driving is that I, I listen to a lot of music in the car. Mm-hmm. 
I'll be honest, I don't use the car to listen to podcasts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're forgiven. But, <laughs> but I, so I listen to music. I listen to it quite loud. You know, maybe I drive too fast and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But if I'm um, in the really slow moving, busy street and I have to be patient, I find I can't tolerate the music. Yes, okay. I can't tolerate kind of more rock yeah, yeah, music, yeah. you know. It's too intense. Right. So what I find they'll do is I'll put Radio yes. 4 on and I'll just listen to, mm-hmm. to talk radio. Because I that in the situation that I'm in, I just don't want that level of intensity anymore because I'm probably concerned with, am I going to get where I need to get to on time? Yeah. So I'm concerned about being late, etc. I don't want that intensity. Yeah. Which explains, I guess, why the, the, the view is that they're binary rather than on a scale, because there's something that literally yeah. you cannot occupy whilst something else is going on, I guess. Yeah, there's research that shows that we can't be serious and playful at the same time. We can't want to fit in with rules and be free from them at the same time. I can't identify with you and with me at the same time, and I can't want power and control and that caring kind of relationship at the same time. Now, that's at any precise moment in time. But what happens in reality in situations is that we go between those, we move. So I might be thinking about what I need right now, and then you speak, and that changes. I remember that, you know, this is important to you. And so my perspective suddenly just just changes. And so these motivations are ebbing and flowing all the time. That's a really good um, example that you've just mentioned around, like, being in a conversation with someone where you're trying to you know, if it's someone you care about deeply and you're trying to give them counsel, you can just instantly flip to that altruistic other's yeah. Yeah. perspective. Yeah. But I guess then my my question is, when you flip back, if you have fully occupied that state of being altruistic or worried about them and not you, and you end up, I don't know, giving advice that's going to hurt you or offering something beyond what you're capable, do you then get frustrated with yourself because... So you go back to a place where you're like, so for the example yeah, I'm thinking is, yeah. for example, you know, you're giving a friend advice and you're like, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll come and wash your car at the weekend mm-hmm. because I can sound like you're really stressed. Yeah, your parents yeah. coming to visit. Yeah. I'll come and help. Okay. And then you kind of flip back to yourself. And you're like, what are you doing? Why did I do, Why yeah, did I do that? Exactly. So it's, there's three things I think that are important. Three basic things are important. The first is that you're able to access all those different styles at different times because mm-hmm. they're all important in our life, just in general and at work. They're all important. The next is that mm-hmm. is about matching. And what you described there is about being able to be in the right style at the right time, and that's important. And the third is expression. Yeah. Say, as a coach, I actually might hold my desire to help you, but I need to do that in a way that is both helpful to you and sensible for me. But what you can be doing is you could be checking in. You could be saying, right, I really want to help this person. Well, how can I do that? And you could be then checking into your own needs and then you could offer the advice, almost like having a conversation with yourself, yeah, yeah. you know, going back and forward and playing the different actors. Um, your motivations would be changing. Well, and that makes, it makes total sense, right? Because we talk, James and I talk quite a lot about thinking about thinking. Yeah. yeah. So giving people and talking to people about the opportunity to take a step, a helicopter view of how you're thinking about something in the past, yeah. present and future, such that you can have an understanding. And I, I so I'm, very specifically thinking about something around procrastination yeah. and one of the things that you you know as someone who struggles with it yeah 
Um, well, the idea of, or very good at it, depending on which way you look at it, um, the idea of being able to understand and recognise that I will be at a place where future girls and a serious, a serious endpoint yeah. and is, is important to me. Mm-hmm. If I can hold that feeling and that awareness in some senses when I'm in my playful state, I've got a better chance of not ending up stuffing it all up so that when I am back in that state, I'm frustrated, yeah. right? Yeah. What you've actually highlighted there is actually a really important point that procrastination is a behavior. Yeah. And the same behavior could have different motivations behind it. And it could have contradictory motivations behind it. So it's really important to understand what is driving that behavior. So you could procrastinate because you're anxious mm-hmm. or you can procrastinate because it's boring. Yeah. Or you because know, you're feeling rebellious and yeah, or you don't really want you're you really pushing against mm-hmm. whatever's been yeah. expected of you. Mm-hmm. You don't really want to do it. Yeah, and so it's important to take that step back and understand what's driving. That's a, that's the the basis of of working with emotions. Essentially, whether you're working with an individual and, and coaching them, or whether you're actually looking at an organisation and saying what's going on here, is the ability to look at emotions essentially as signals. And what reversal theory does is help us to decode those signals in motivational terms. And so it changes a view of stress, right? And and what reversal theory does is it has a view of stress that separates out that initial emotional experience from the effort that that you then put into try and resolve it. Mm -hmm. And if you can treat that initial emotional experience as nothing more than a signal, and you can actually decode it, then it gives you a completely different perspective on stress and on unpleasant emotions. And it's exactly what you said. It's about being able to take a step back and go, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. And if you can understand it, you can go, right, so what do I need to do about yeah. it? And that link between motivation and emotion and, and the fact that there are these eight different motivations actually gives you lots of different strategies, lots of different options to try because you can use the stress, use the emotion as a motivation. Yeah. For example, if you're feeling anxious, you can, well, you prepare, right? Or you mitigate risk or whatever. You can try and bring down the level of the anxiety um, by managing the size of the goal, the level of expectations or the steps to it. Or you can try and change your motivation and change your perspective entirely. So one option is to reverse, to go from one motivation in a pair to another. Or remembering back to the glasses analogy, from one lens to another lens. Okay. So you say, this problem doesn't seem to be going away when I try these different strategies from the perspective of just looking at the activity elements, the, the goals and the rules. Well, actually, I'm going to look at it in terms of the relationship. Does that give me a different strategy that I can use? Yeah, okay. So it opens up lots of potential. It also just helps people think broadly. When we've got a problem to solve, we often get sucked into thinking really narrowly about it. Whereas actually, if you think, look, there are eight different ways of looking at this problem. Yeah. You know, let's let's walk through them all. <laughs> it changes things. And and then practically, I mean, so so there you've highlighted some of the benefits of yeah. reversal and how it can help you. What can you practically do? I mean, if you're maybe feeling um, anxious about something, what practical steps can you do to to shift that lens that you're viewing things through? You can just try and change your focus. Yeah. Focus on something different. Try and change your thought pattern. Yep. So a lot of this stuff is the same sort of stuff that you would use in, for example, in cognitive behavioral therapies. Yeah. You know, you've got things like 
you know, reframing. You've got all sorts of techniques you can use. And the nice thing about reverse theory is it doesn't prescribe what techniques you use. It just gives you what, you know, what options you have. And so you can think about thought patterns. You can think about things like reframing. You can act. You can just say, well, I'm going to adopt this style. I'm going to, I'm going to start being silly. Right. (laughs) And and that will get me into a more playful style. You can use associations. You can use music. You know, video, um, you know, you could carry a little something that reminds you of, of something. Right, okay. So there's a, a whole load of things that you can actually do. I mean, there's loads of therapeutic techniques that help people just look at things from those different perspectives. So things like um, journaling. Yeah. Uh, journaling from the eight different perspectives. Okay, interesting. Uh, you know, okay, write about that problem from all eight perspectives. There's a, there's a technique, the eight rooms technique. And they literally set up rooms that are designed in a way that will stimulate that that motivational style. And they can go in and you can actually physically go into those different rooms and, and talk about the issue okay well that's that's already my favorite thing yeah. <laughs> my favorite dealing with but, um, but okay so so sit, someone's sitting at home right now and listening and they're like okay this actually sounds yeah. really interesting um it, you talk about journaling is one of it would it be useful for someone to reflect on when they most recently felt they were in that place of each of the eight and whether because i'm conscious that you said really early doors yeah. it's really important that people access all, all eight at some form yeah and therefore yeah. Yeah. i'm just looking at them and thinking there's probably a couple in there that I don't spend time that I can pinpoint feeling that way. And so I, yeah. for me, I certainly feel like a reflection on when was I last in that place and why and, and did I feel yeah. comfortable and was it something that was useful to me? And uh, useful is the wrong word, but did it bring me some form of, you know, yeah. enrichment Well, you can look life? at it from the point of view of a reflection and to reflect from those different perspectives and, and ask those kind of questions, mm-hmm. you know, so was it useful, et cetera. But you could just say, when did I last experience pleasure in that state so if you want to access just when it felt good to be there you could just do that um it depends on your what you're trying to achieve you know the environment at work can often sort of skew our perspectives so what we'll find that we often talk about is well if you don't feel like that at work very often when are you like that outside of work you know so if you're very serious at work, when do you find that you're playful? Oh, yeah. is it when you're doing your hobbies? Well, how could you be more like that in the work setting? What could you bring? I, or it might be, you know, I, I find that I'm taking up too much of my energy because I'm always giving. Well, you know, when do you enjoy just doing something for yourself? And it might be something as simple and small as, well, you know, I like to have a bath just to have some me time, even if it's for 15 minutes every now and again. Yeah, okay, so you can do it. What is it about having a bath? Well, it's about making space, it's making time. Okay, you know, you know, how could you do that in different settings? I think that's a great thing about it compared to things like trait psychology, because it's instead of saying, I'm more like this than that, you can say, well, even if you're not like that very often, let's look at when you are and let's see if we can, you know, find ways of helping you like that well yeah cool well that's really helpful i think unfortunately rob we're kind of getting to the end of our time okay um just to just to wrap up would you be able to um share with uh with the audience again how people could learn a little bit more about reversal theory and learn about um you and what you're up to yeah um so i'm pretty active on linkedin um on linkedin i am rob robson (laughs) i'm quite active on twitter at robert s robson so it's probably easiest to get hold of me in that way my company website is 8connectpeople.com. Cool. 
I actually do run run regular webinars on reverse theory. I run this little Facebook group cool. on buying reversal theory. Um, but there's also lots of books. Yeah. Michael Apter is the main author, but there have been others. Um, there's also a reversal theory society. Oh, so wow. that's reversaltheory.org. They run a conference every couple of years. Okay. Next cool. year will be in Paris. Be nice. So <laughs> lots of lots. Yeah, lots of opportunities to uh, to okay, find out more. Well, brilliant. Yeah, I think it's just time to say thank you very much for your time. That was really interesting. Yeah, I would oh, I would oh, thoroughly recommend thank the webinars. You. I've done yeah. one. I really enjoyed it. I found it really useful and it gave me lots to think about. So yeah, uh, I definitely endorse those. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. Lovely way to spend the afternoon talking about reversal theory. Yep. And happy Valentine's Day. Yes, yes. <laughs> Spread the love. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great, have care. a good weekend. Cheers. Right. Bye. Okay, you're back with us now. That was our conversation with Rob. I thought there was some really interesting stuff in there. Yeah, it's not something, I have to confess, it's not something I've come across before. So it was mm-hmm. really helpful for me to understand a little bit more about it and to consider it sort of against some of the other theories that we've talked about in the past. Yeah, and I liked Rob's sort of walk through of some of the theories and, and you know, looking at how the coming together of, of sort of process and content theories has happened in more recent years and, and led us to, to sort of where we are in some of this world. I thought that was a helpful background as well. Um, in terms of takeaways from this conversation, was there anything that particularly struck you or, or stuck with you? Yeah, I think so. I think particularly with this theory, I, I've struggled for a long time around a lot of the content and process theories that they feel very singular. Uh-huh. They feel they feel like they try and explain everything with one explanation. Okay. Um, what I really like about this is is the ability to explain how you can be in two different states very closely together. Yeah. So uh, I think the example he talked about was being like, you know, in a really jovial, happy place, but if something serious happens, you can instantly flip and you can, your state changes because your priorities change. Yeah. Like one of his examples was driving along in a car, going fast, having fun, hair down, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's tangible, right? I I feel that. And it's the first time I've really thought about a motivation theory and thought that feels more, I mean, there's, you know, it's, set aside of evidence for a minute which is always dangerous in this podcast yep but for me it starts to explain the plurality of human needs and yeah. processes yeah and i really like that i really like that it starts to think about i might have more than one thing that pushes my buttons yeah yeah it's nice it's about basket of needs i guess or a basket of um, emotions and, and that's interesting um i guess for me my main takeaway is probably fairly similar but it's more to do with the active reversal of those and and the ability to, to pick one aspect of motivation or, or one of the domains of reversal theory and focus on that. And then maybe to switch between it, you know, to, to revisit my anxiety and think of it as an excitement or revisit, um, you know, my, uh, my sort of joviality and think of it as actually, well, that's a great playfulness. Or, or you know, having that consciousness and ability to jump between things, I felt uh, a good takeaway for me, but also something that would be useful in coaching and in other lines of work as well. Yeah, it's, when you think about it, it's one of the few theories that offers you something that you can do internally Yeah. rather than adjusting, particularly with content and process, there's lots of external adjustment that is yeah. required to, to impact that. Whereas, yeah. you know, it nicely suggests there might be something you can do yourself. Yeah, and I think that lenses analogy that he uses is quite good. You know, you just look yeah. at things in different ways. And yeah, I think, nice. I think I've gone from a place where no one talks about lenses to... The last couple of years, I feel like everything is through a lens. Yeah, yeah, and we're all wearing glasses, right? Or at least we are here, so there we go. Um, all right, well, I guess that's probably it for this week, and we'll be back again in another week or so with another episode. See you then. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. 
To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.